Okay, that brings us to our consideration. And so our consideration from today is from my favorite book of all time, and uh, you know what it is. Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death. So what does Neil have to say today? Well, he talks about when news becomes entertainment, and this is what he reads. It needs also to be noted here that the new and successful magazines such as People and Us are not only examples of television-oriented print media, but have had an extraordinary ricochet effect on television itself. Whereas television taught the magazines that news is nothing but entertainment, the magazines have taught television that nothing but entertainment is news. Television programs such as Entertainment Tonight turns information about entertainers and celebrities into serious cultural content so that the the circle uh, begins to close both the form and the content of news becomes entertainment. And that's what we have today. And so it's just everything is just entertainment oriented. And so everything is viewed by entertainment. The ability of the person involved to entertain people. The churches have become nothing but entertainment centers. And so there's not, there's a move away from serious content of scripture. And how can you entertain me? And that's what you have today. And not only in the church, but also in the broader society. Entertainment is the thing that people crave more than substance. And that's where we're at in the culture. And uh, someone says it's the same elements in place that cause Rome to fall. And you, you have that. And so it's just really inter- uh, interesting when you see this. And this is by Neil Postman in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Okay, we come to our message on spiritual gifts. And um, we're <clears throat> talked about and tried to show you that uh, there were gifts that were given that was temporary. And I think that, you know, good men can argue about this and say, oh, well, that's not true. Well, I think that some of the scriptures that we looked at would prove that certainly there's a lot of gifts that don't exist today. Uh, if you were a prophet, I would like to give you, uh, you to say something about what's going to happen in the future regarding the church that has to come true. And you know, back in the Old Testament, if a prophet was wrong, they had a rock concert. And it was the, not the Rolling Stones, but the Throwing Stones. <laughs> and they, they really, if you weren't, and it was 100% accuracy. You couldn't fudge and say, oh, I, I got 99%, but I missed one. It was 100% accuracy. And so uh, the same thing with the apostles. The apostles had, uh, had the ability to do three kinds of miracles. If you think that you're an apostle, okay, uh, I won't argue with you, but let's go to the cemetery. Or let's go to the nursing home. Let's go to the hospitals. Let's see you do your work. Um, so it's pretty obvious to see that some of these gifts are not in existence today. And so they've ha- the term and the, the view of them have, has been watered down in order to acquiesce to the fact that they're not actually working the way they were in the early church. And so nobody would ever say that a prophet is actually prophesying today because it would have to come true. There was a guy in Portland back when we were living in Portland. He said that he was a prophet. And he made a prophecy that the, earth, the world was going to come to an end on such and such day. I don't know. You remember that, Joyce? And he's had all the people in the churches out there just convinced that this was going to happen. That day came and went. Nothing. 
Now, in the Old Testament, he would have been stoned to death. He did, to his uh, credit, acknowledge he was wrong, that he had made a mistake. And so you see, these gifts don't have the ability, God, it's not that those gifts were not valid, but we saw last week that God was using those gifts because they didn't have the, uh, the canon of scripture. He was using those gifts to validate the messenger and to give the church things that they needed in the interim. Now that we're on the other side of it and we have the canon of scripture, everything that is said and done is measured by this. You can measure what I say by this, whether what I'm saying is true. And I, I invite you to. I want you to. Check me to see if what I'm saying is true. You should. And so that's the thing that's different. And so you now come to uh, these gifts that we believe and we can show that are in existence today. And there's 11 of them. So on page five of your bulletin, we have a new chart uh, in the bulletin. And so what we're going to see as we move forward is that these gifts are broken into these different categories. So you have what are called permanent gifts. And so in these permanent gifts, you have teaching gifts, you have motivating gifts, you have order gifts, you have benevolent gifts, and you have outreach. And so those are the, the, the sum total. Now, all of these gifts are given, and they're for the benefit of the church. All of them, as they're working together, are going to build the church up and make the church stronger <laughs> so that when you come to a local church, there's nothing wrong with music, but not music for music's sake, right? Music has to be biblically correct. I, I was uh, reading, there was a guy who was a, a musician, a Christian, and I use that word lightly, musician, and uh, his son came to him and asked him uh, about a song called The Reckless Love of God. And the guy, the kid, about 12 years old, said he was looking in the Bible and he could not see a scripture that said God's love is reckless. So he asked his father, where is this in the Bible? And the father says, oh, I guess it's not. He, he didn't sing it, but another group sang it. And the guy said, you know, it, it occurred to him that songs should be biblical. And so a lot of your songs today, a lot of your uh, uh, sad to say, a lot of your songs today, your contemporary songs, have no basis in the Bible whatsoever. And again, it's it's just gotten off into some things, and it's and it's really distracting from where the church should be, which is edifying each other, building each other up, and that makes a huge difference. So now you can see that it can be seen in the church that there's eleven gifts that remain in the church. Each of these gifts are designed for the building up of the body of Christ. We will look at each of these 11 gifts and attempt to determine from Scripture how each gift uh, functions in the body. So today we'll look at the gift of administration. So a lot of people think that the pastor-teacher gift, that the pastor-teacher is the CEO of the church. Again, so I would ask you, where in the Bible do you see that? It is not the job of the pastor to run the business of the church. In fact, the pastors should have nothing to do with the business of the church. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that. The pastor's job, and what you'll see in Scripture, and we've talked about this a lot, 
is there's two realms of authority in the church. You have the spiritual realm of authority, and then you have the business realm of authority. The pastor's authority is only in spiritual matters. And that is just not carte blanche authority. My authority as a pastor teacher is only as it lines up with scripture. So if I told you, I think you should use zip fizz, that is not some kind of (laughs) commandment from God. (laughs) No one should follow that. You might might be good advice for you, which I've told some people and they've used it and they thought it was a great thing, but that's not from God. That did not come down from God. All my people shall use zip fizz. I mean, but you have people who use the office that way. And they think that everything that they say come from God. My authority is only as good as it lines up with scripture. Anything outside of that is just my advice. And your advice is as good as mine. And so uh, when it comes to the business of the church, we're going to see this guy. He's really, I think, the optimum guy to have in the church running the business of the church. Really, he should be the chairman of the deacon board because he has the capacity to run the business of the church. It's this guy that runs the business of the church. Now, you, we're going to see that you have several gifts that are work good with deacons. And uh, so you, have the, you will see that you have the gift of ministry, you have the gift of administration, you have the gift of organization. All of those would be good with deacons, but this guy with the gift of administration, he has an ability to organize things in ways that other people don't have that same ability. And so he's a, a good guy to have as in the church. I mean, I don't know if we have a guy like that. We'll, we'll find out maybe as we get through these gifts. But he's a guy that really is, is handling optimum. This guy's running the business of the church. The pastor teacher's running the spiritual direction in the church. And that really creates a great uh, situation for a local church. It would to God that no pastor had to do with any business of the church. That would be the optimum thing. And that there's a separation between the business of the church and the spiritual matters of the church. Now, it is the responsibility of the pastor teaching, you will see it as we go forward, to make sure that all of the things that are going on in the church are lining up with what Scripture says. Because at the end of the day, the person who is a pastor teacher is responsible before God to make sure those things are done. So let's just say that you guys wanted to have some kind of a gambling parlor in the church here, right? And well, my responsibility is not to say, you can't do that. My job is to say, that ain't scriptural. And what if you say to me, get lost, buddy. We're going to do it anyway. Okay, you're going to do it without me. I'm not going to stop you from doing it, but I will not be a party to it. You see how that works? And so I have a responsibility as a pastor teacher to make sure things are lining up with scripture and what's going on in the church. I have no responsibility whatsoever to be a dictator in the church ever. Not ever, ever, ever should a pastor dictate anything. In fact, scripture talks about pastor dictators and it doesn't talk about them well. 
And so we'll see that as we go forward. Now, this causes and allows the body of Christ to be able to function in the way that it's supposed to function. You don't want a situation in the church where the pastor teachers like Michael Jordan, anybody remember this? Michael Jordan, when he first got into the league, he would score 63 points and they would still lose. You know why? Everybody else was just standing around watching. Michael Jordan would score 63 points, and he learned that when he distributed the ball to other people, the team won. The pastor teacher is not the only gift in the church. It is not even the main gift in the church. There's other gifts in the church that when they're all working the right way, the believers in the local church are edified and built up, and God is glorified. And so hopefully that's what we'll see as we go through these. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful that as believers that we had for the opportunity to glorify you and how we conduct ourselves. And thankful for these, each of these, these gifts that you've given to the church. And as believers are spiritual and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, that we can actually manifest the kind of things through these gifts that edify and build up one another so that as we go out into the world, that we're able to glorify you and how we conduct our manner of life. And we're thankful for that potential. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And so there are two um, church offices we want to start with that are talked about in Scripture. And so you have this office of bishop. And if you turn over to uh, 1 Timothy 3, we'll start there and then we'll backtrack into Acts 20. And so I want you to know that the word bishop is actually a biblical term. Um, And it's actually the term that is used for the office of pastor teacher. But I want to share a secret with you. I would not want to be called Bishop Kevin Jeffrey. Please, please don't ever say that to me. (laughs) Just because of the connotation that it takes on today, right? It's just got such a bad connotation. They've taken a biblical word and used it in the wrong way. And so look here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says, if the man, if it is, this is a true saying, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. So the word bishop is the technical term for pastor teacher, the office of, or the office of, really it's the word overseer. And so you have the gift, pastor teacher, the office is overseer. So not everybody that has a pastor teacher gift has to be an overseer, you see. And so, really, he says here, one has to lust for the office. You have to want to be an overseer. And I can see it now, having done it for 21 years. If you don't desire to do it, you won't be effective. You won't. And if you are just putting in, put in there and you don't want to do it, you will not be very effective at it. And so that's why it says you have to have a desire. You have to stretch out to, 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 for this office And notice he says in verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless. And then he gives a qualification for a bishop. Now, I give you the definition here is a bishop is an overseer, literally one uh, who thoroughly scopes out or looks out for the spiritual needs of those under his care in a local church, which is a manifestation of the body of Christ. And so a bishop, there's only two offices that are given in Scripture that are in the church. That would surprise you because I'm sure you have seen that there's so many different kinds of offices that are talked about in the church. There's only two that scripture recognizes. It's this office of bishop and the other office 
uh, as we'll see it in a second, deacon. So notice in uh, Acts 20 and verse 28. Now, we're not talking about this office here today, but we'll get back to this. But I just wanted to show you, to set this up, to show you where the uh, gift of administration is going to work and how it works. And so notice in Acts 20 and in verse 28, you see this idea of an overseer. Paul says in verse uh, 28, he calls the elders of the church and he talks to them and he, and he gives them this declaration. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. And to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so one of the things that a pastor, teacher, and uh, overseer is conscious of is that this is not my flock. I didn't die for anybody. I'm just an overseer. I'm just an under-shepherd. This is the flock that belongs to God. And so... It's not up to me to make people do anything. You don't belong to me. You belong to the Lord Jesus, you see. And to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. And that's what we'll get deal with this as we get to the office of uh, pastor teacher and that, that uh, gift of pastor teacher in the office of bishop. And the, the main thing that the pastor teacher is supposed to do is feed the flock. That's my job. So I know you might be disappointed that I can't sing like Stevie Wonder or, you know, like uh, Andre Crouch, but that's not my job. I have one job, and it's Karukstan Lagan, preach the word and herald it with authority. That's my job. It's none, none of this other stuff that people try to make the pastor teacher do. And one of the things that it says is that your responsibility is in this office, one of the things that you have to be able to do in this office is be able to teach. If you cannot teach, you should not be in this office. The pastor teacher's job is to feed, to feed, to feed, to feed. Over and above every, anything else. My job, I am not an evangelist. That's not my job. My job is to make sure that when people are in the local church, they're being taught the word of God and they're being taught the word of God accurately. And so that's what you see there. Now notice with deacon. Deacon is the word, and you see it again over in 1 Timothy 3. So these are the two offices, and I believe that this guy with the gift of administration, I believe you can plug him in, in here, and he would make the church work well. And so in 1 Timothy 3... Now you get down and you see the office of deacon here. Verse 8, likewise, must the deacons be grave. And so in Acts 6, and we will go back there, what happened was that the apostles were trying to do a lot of things and they thought it was necessary to create this office in which you had people whose total dedication was taking care of the service of the church and the, the ministry of dealing with the needs of the people in the church. And that's where the office of deacon came from. And so why did they come up with that office? So that the, uh, the teachers could focus just on teaching. Just on teaching. Do you realize, and I don't think that a lot of people understand, how much involved it is to teach. 
People who've done it before, I see Calvin nodding his head. You stood up here behind this pulpit, you understand it's not an easy thing to study and to actually dig into the word and to present a coherent message that's going to build up the saints. It's not an easy thing. And if I'm out doing all of this other stuff involved in politics and all this other tomfoolery, I don't have time to do that. And so it's a job in and of itself. And so the deacons, they then have the ability to take the business of the church and to know how to conduct the business of the church. And ideally what you'll see, and we'll get to this, is that a deacon is spiritual. You have to have a deacon who is spiritual, who's filled by the Spirit, and now he's led to do the things that he does as the Holy Spirit leads him in conducting the business of the church. And that makes a huge difference. And so you have those two offices. Now, there are several gifts that can fill these offices. Now, I believe the pastor-teacher gift is the only one that can, can fill the office of bishop. The uh, qualification with a guy who is a bishop is he must be able to teach. I believe this is why the church is going off the rails. Is there are people in the pulpit all around this fruited plain of ours and all over the world who have no capability of teaching. And it's not a slight against them. They're in those positions for whatever reason they're in there, but they don't know how to teach. And the believers in those locations are dying on the vine because they're not being taught the word of God. And it's just a sad thing. And so a pastor teacher should be able to teach, and I believe he fills this office of bishop. Now notice several gifts can be used for the office of deacon. And so you have the gift of organization, and we'll see that when we uh, get to it. You have the gift of ministry, and then you have the gift of administration. So this guy, administration, really interesting gift. And so we'll see it over in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-eight. Now, it's not translated this in 1 Corinthians. You would have to look at the original to really get the name of the gift in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-eight. And so notice here, Paul writes it and he says, And God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, <clears throat> and after that miracles, then gifts of healings and gifts of helps and governments. Now, we understand that word, government. And so government is a structure or one who has the ability to rule or to set up order to direct uh, things And so that's the word that's translated here actually for the word uh, administration. Now I want to uh, show a distinction here because there's several words that's translated governments that are used in Scripture. And it's not the word that we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians 12. And so you have, for example, uh, various translations for governments and government, government rulers. And these should be distinguished from this. Because in the unsaved world, people who are uh, rulers or over governments... They exercise lordship, right? And one of the things that you'll find in the church, nobody, nobody is a lord over anyone else. No one. In the Gentile world, you see it that way, though, right? Notice in Second uh, Peter 2, in verse 10. Second Peter 2, in verse 10. And it's actually translated, um, I think, here, uh, lordships. Um, uh, actually, I'm sorry, it's translated government. Well, I've already told you it was government. I don't know how. But they, actually, the, the uh, Greek word of it actually has a different view of it. 
But uh, notice in verse 9, uh, let's go back a little bit to get some context. Verse 7, and he delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Hey, just know that you're not the only one that got tired of seeing the world that was around them in the way that it was. Lot saw worse than you, that you and I did, I think. Well, it's getting that way. Maybe we were getting ready to pass Lot, but he saw a lot of bad stuff, and it said it bothered him to no end. And so notice he says, For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust to the day of, of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise the word their government is actually the word for uh, curates. And it's uh, described as spirit beings who govern is actually how that's being used. And so you have that word government there, and that's different from our word that is being used, which is actually the word kubernetes, and we'll see that. Now notice a couple of other things that you see, people who are able to organize and structure things. You have the word for a, uh, a steward in First Corinthians 4.1. Now this word for steward is not our word for steward, which is orkodomene, um, or actually it's... Um, <laughs> it's it's actually, the, that's not the word that I was wanting to use. It's actually the, another word there. It's hoopertase. It's actually the one that I was wanting to use there. Uh, and it's the hoopertase is an attendant. Uh, a hoopertase is like an underroar. Um, and so what does a hoopertase do? Back on the ships, back in the old days, they would have a guy who would set the pace for things. And so he would beat a drum, and he would set the pace for how the, the rowers rowed. And that's this guy. And so he's an attendant that sets the pace for something. And, and it's translated, notice here, um, minister. Let a man so account of us as ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so Paul was saying that he set the pace. It's interesting. This word is used of uh, John Mark in uh, Acts 13. It says that he was setting the pace for Bar- uh, Barnabas and Saul's apostolic journey. He was like the chief of staff. He was organizing their journeys until they went, got to Pamphylia and something happened there. And uh, he got a little scared and ran back home to Mama. Uh, But he set the pace. He was the one that was setting the pace. And so you have that word that is used. Then you have hegemon. We won't look these other two up, which is a a use of Gentile rulers. And then you have the word ethnarchase, which is one who's uh, set over people as a ruler but without authority. And so some of these words are translated governments, and they're used of people who rule or who direct things. And, uh, but this is a word that we're using in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. It's a totally different word, and it's the word for kubernis. And it's used <coughs> uh, only one time in the New Testament. Only one, well, really, it's the, this form is used one time. It's used three times, three different times, and we'll look at the three different times it's used. So... You go to the Septuagint, and it gives us a little bit more illustration. Now, I want to give you a, um, about the Septuagint. It's not a, a um, what would I say, reliable guide to, say, um, to go by all the time. But it can give you good illustrations of how words were used. In the Septuagint, what they did is they took the Old Testament and they translated it into the Greek language. 
And so that's what the Septuagint is. And you can get good illustrations about how some of these words were used. And so in looking at this word for kubernetes in the Septuagint, you can see it translated that way in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word that is used to translate it is the word takbula, which is translated counsel. Uh, and I would tra- give it this definition. Those things that are determined for the purpose of plotting some course in life. Is, uh, and so this, the plotting of a course is the idea behind it uh, with the Hebrew equi- equivalent of what was used. Let's look at a couple of them uh, in the Old Testament. And so look, if you would, in Proverbs, the 12th chapter in verse 25. Proverbs 12:25. But what you see behind it is this idea of someone who plots a course. They set a direction. And most of the time, and as we get to the New Testament, you're going to see it's used of a pilot or a shipmaster. And so one who plots a course and they set a direction. And that's kind of uh, how it's used uh, uh, a lot of times. And notice in uh, Proverbs the 12, uh, uh, chapter, notice in verse, uh, we'll start with verse 1. Whosoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he that hates reproof is brutish. A good man obtains favor of the Lord, but a man of wicked devices will he condemn. A man shall not be established by wickedness, but the root of righteousness shall be moved. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, but she that makes a shame is as rottenness to his bones. Uh, The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels, uh, the one who uh, the determinations is the idea of, of the wicked are deceitful. And so this idea of counsels, those things that are determined for the purpose of plotting some course is the idea behind it. In another place, you can see it used in the 24th chapter of Proverbs of the wise. Proverbs 24 and verse 6. Now notice in uh, verse 6, For by wise counsel thou shalt make uh, thy war, or in the multitude of counselors there is safety. And so the ideal here of uh, someone who is able to plot a course, to make determinations for things, <laughs> that are able to take people in a certain direction. So counsel, we'll get to that next trimester when we talk about the decree and the will of God. That they, there was a council, there were determinations made and, and concerning God's will. But here you have this person or people that have the ability to make determinations or to plot a course. And so that's how it's translated, or the equivalent word in the Hebrew translates the word. Now notice, it is used of the kind of person who has this ability to chart a course in uh, Ezekiel 27 and verse 8. And actually the word there is the word chobel, and it's of a pilot and so you'll see it that way in Ezekiel, um, what did I say, Ezekiel 27 and verse 8. And so you consistently see, even in the Old Testament, the equivalent words that are used, that it's this idea of someone who has the ability to plot a course or to make certain uh, determinations about the direction to go in. Notice in Ezekiel 27 and notice in verse 8, the inhabitants of Zidon and of Arvad were they mariners. Thy wise men, O Tyrus, that were in thee were thy pilots. It's translated pilots here. And you'll see it when you get over to the New Testament. This word actually has the idea of one who's able to steer a course. 
of like a shipman or a captain of a ship, and they're able to steer uh, things in a certain direction. So let's go over to the New Testament, and we'll see it uh, used here. We have the word kerbanase, uh, um, and it's the, the, view, the verb form of it is from the word kerbanao, which is used in Scripture of one who steers a ship or an organization in a certain direction. And so I'm going to give you uh, two different definitions here. Um, I'm like what Don said this morning. Sometimes you get definitions when you have one word that only occurs a few times. Uh, you do have to go and get some help from your lexicons. Uh, and sometimes they help and sometimes not. But here we have from Thomas Green his definition of this word for kerbanao, <clears throat> which is the word that is translated administration. Or we saw it in 1 Corinthians 12:28. It was translated government. To steer or to direct government, the office of a governor or a director. And so an administrator, a government in the, in the local church is a person that has the ability to direct or to govern the church. Now we know that the, we can prove from scripture that the office of bishop is dealing with the spiritual matters of the church. That's why he's told that he has the ability, has to have the ability to teach. This person is different. They are governing the church, and I believe they're governing the business of the church. And if you've not had people who don't understand how to govern the business of the church, well, I've been around a little bit, and I've seen churches that haven't had people who know how to govern business of the church, and it can get really bad. Um, You're handling the money of the church, knowing how to properly use that money, having people who know how to not mismanage the money, uh, all of this is very, very important. And so uh, when you have that business, understanding how to deal with the people who don't have need. Now, we have in our church constitution here, the stated view of our church constitution is that <clears throat> our responsibility as a local church is to use the overage and the benevolence fund or the benevolence fund money to help out poor believers who are in need. Poor believers who are in need. And if the opportunity presents itself, then to help out unsaved people who might be in need. But the believers first. Now, why is this important? Galatians, the sixth chapter says, as you have opportunity, do the good to all men. But especially to those of the household of faith. So if you have resources as a believer, your first responsibility in the use of those resources is to another believer who has need. And then as you have opportunity to the unsaved man. And if you have somebody who is, is a gift of administration and they're operating in the office of bishop or, or excuse me, deacon, and they're misusing the money because they have a bleeding heart for the unsaved and they're taking the, the church's resources and using it for things that they shouldn't. It makes a huge difference. I told you I had the church's phone in my house when we moved over there for the first time. It was a very interesting thing. The amount of people that called the church and not only asked for the church, things for the church, they almost demanded. As if you, this is your responsibility. You should be doing this. I just thought it was interesting. But when you have a person who understands what the role of the church is and what the church's responsibility is, they'll take the church's resources and use it in a proper manner. And they have the ability to govern in that way. That's not the pastor teacher's job. It really isn't. 
And so notice, um, I give you another definition here by Ronnie Carrogers. He says this word, as used in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, administration, literally, it refers to the stirring of a ship. The plural indicates proofs of ability to hold a leading position in the church. The verb is applied to the management of a household in an, in an inscription. And so you have this idea of management. The person who is in this gift, has this gift, has the ability to know how to manage. And what are they managing? They're managing the church's resources, the church's business. This is what an administrator does. And I think that this guy, if you had a guy with the gift of administration and he was running the business of the church, boy, the church would be, uh, you have the right teaching and the right business, it would be great. It would be great uh, to have that. Now, notice um, you have this uh, noun form of the word, and it has this cis ending. So, kerbinesis is the noun form, and that's, that ending on there actually has the idea of the act of steering or directing. And that's what we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, and it's translated government. Uh, he has given government, or you would say, and he has given the ability to steer or to direct in a certain direction. The person that has that gift has that ability to steer the church in a certain direction. And, uh, and I think it's really necessary. And notice you have another form of the word, and we'll look at these two in Acts 27 and, and Revelation. And the Greek suffix has this ideal, uh, the root changes the focus of the word from steer, uh, to steer and to direct one who steers or directs uh, something in a certain direction. And both of these are used of a shipmaster. Look at Acts, the 27th chapter, in verse 11. Acts chapter 27 and verse 11. Now, I've always found this is interesting. <clears throat> so Paul is on his way to Rome, <clears throat> and uh, he's appealing to Caesar, and he's on this ship, and he's under arrest. And so you have this centurion that's guarding him, <clears throat> and so they're getting ready to pull off from a place called Fairhavens, and Paul offers some insight to them that they shouldn't leave. And they're listening to Paul, and they, you got this guy's a skilled shipmaster, and he's listening to Paul and says, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And so they take off. Well, what you read the rest of the chapter 27, and I don't know if I would have done this, but Paul did. He, once they got into the storm, he, he said to them, you should have listened to me. <laughs> not have taken off. I told you we should not have left. But you did. And so notice verse 9. He does this. And now when much time was spent, when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them. And he said unto them, sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and of the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the satyrian believed the master of the and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. So this idea of these uh, master is our word for kerbinesis, one who was steers or directs uh, a ship. And so and this idea of one who is an administrator is where it comes over from in First Corinthians 12. And it's the idea that one who directs, they're able to make decisions about what direction to go in, which direction to steer the church in. Now, this is important. This is not the pastor teacher's job. It really isn't. I'll say it again and again. I'm not trying to get rid of responsibility. Uh, 
Courtney says that to me when I try to get other people to preach. He says, Dad, you're just, resp- you're just dodging your own responsibility. <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to put it where it is that there are people within the local church that have the ability to do it. And what we're going to see in this is that person has the ability to do it better than people who don't have that gift. They do. You could put people that fill in. Like, I mean, any of these gifts we're going to find, you could put people that fill in and they can do some of it, but not like the person that has that gift. And why is this important? Because there's a lot of people, for example, who want to be like the gift of evangelist. They think that they can evangelize like the person who has the gift of evangelism. And then when they can't do it, they feel like, oh, I'm falling so far short. I'm just such a miserable believer. I can't do it. No, it's not that you can't do it. You can't do it like that person because God is using them in a different way than he used someone that doesn't have that gift. The person that has the gift of administration can steer the church in a direction like no one else. And so notice, you see it used again over in Revelation, the 18th chapter, in verse 17. Now here in Revelation, the 18th chapter, you see the end of the world system as we know it. The world system is going to end. I know that some of you that who love and in love with the world system, I hope you're not around during this time because you're going to be mourning like these people are mourning. Everything that you see, all of the physical possessions, the cars, the phones, and all of the structure of all of that is going to be changed. So that going into the millennial kingdom, none of that kind of stuff is going to exist. So, When it's destroyed, right before the the millennial kingdom, these people who love it so much, they are in absolute mourning. They're in absolute mourning. And so notice in the 17th verse here, um, let's get some context here. Uh, Let's go back, if if you would, to verse uh, uh, 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled to her double, how much she has glorified herself. And live delicacies and so much torment and sorrow give her. For she has said in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Well, what happens is in the tribulation period is the world system church. After the rapture occurs, you know, you're going to have a lot of people still sitting in churches. They're not going to recognize that the rapture has even occurred. All they're going to think is, man, I'm glad we got rid of these troublemaker believers that I didn't like. And so they're going to still be sitting in the church. So now this church is going to join with the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, all of your um, uh, other kind of religions, your Harry Krishners. All these people are going to join together and form one world system church. And they're going to go on as if nothing has happened. They're going to finally have the unity they desired. And so they're the ones, believe it or not, it's the world system church that's going to give rise to the man of lawlessness. Do you know that? Look over at the 17th chapter. It's not the government. It's the world system church that does it. 
And he comes in riding on the beast in the 17th chapter and they form with the government. The church joins with the government and they just create all kinds of riches. And what happens? It comes to an end. And when it comes to an end, they mourn. Look at verse. um, So that's when she says, I sit as a queen. It's talking about this entity of the mixture of the government with the church. And see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. And the kings of this earth who have committed fornication and has lived deliciously with her shall bewail her. Well, what is they talking about? There's a certain place where this, this system is going to be operating from. Now, the way that it's described, some people say it's Rome. Now, I think there's a lot of evidence to believe that it is Rome from the description that is given. So this entity is going to go up in flames and the people are going to mourn it. And so notice he says, for strong is the Lord who has judged her. For the kings of the earth have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her and shall bewail her and lament her when they see the, the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys her merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and of silver and of precious stones and of pearls and of fine linen and of purple and of silk and of scarlet and of all fine wood and all manners of vessels and ivory and all manners of precious wood and of brass and of iron and of marble and of cinnamon, and of odors, and of ointment, and of frankincense, and wine, and oil, and flour, and wheat, and beast, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves, and the souls of men. You see that? This is all world system. This is all the things people live for in the world system. Now, I told you before, when I was young, we were so poor, we didn't call it poor, we call it poor. And I didn't know what fine linen sheets were like. I didn't even know that there was such a thing as thread counts in sheets. I never heard of such a thing. We just were happy to have a part of a sheet on the bed. And so when you find out where there's such a thing as thread counts, you mean the sheets actually feel better when they're from Giza? (laughs) I had never heard of such a thing before. But people understand that, and they live for the pleasures of the world system, you see. Now, when this is destroyed, they're going to go bonkers. They're not going to have the ability to have this anymore, and their souls are not going to be contented. And so notice he says, verse 14, and the fruits and that thy soul lusted after. Why does he say your soul? Because the soul is your seed of your emotions. Why do I like Miss J's banana pudding? It's soulish. <coughs> now that's real soul food, because when I eat it, my soul says, this is great. That's what your soul does. All of the things in the world system are appealing to your soul. What makes you feel good? And that's different from one person to the other. And so the fruits that your soul lusted after departed from thee, 
and all things that were dainty and goodly were departed from thee, thou shalt find, no, find them no more at all. Now notice he says in verse 15, and the merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand far off for the fear of her torment and the weeping and the wailing. You realize what all people are thinking about today is getting rich? You know, even in this um, so-called um, pandemic that's going on, people have become billionaires. The billionaires have gotten richer. There are people who are just making tons of money off of all of this. And that's all they think about. All people are to them are just pawns in the game, and they're making money hand over fist, and that's all they ever think about. And so notice he goes on and saying, verse 16, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city which was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come not to naught, and every shipmaster, and there's our word, Kerbinasis, one, or it's really Kerbates, one who directs and one who guides and steers a ship in a certain direction. And all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off. And they cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like unto the great city? No city is going to be like Babylon in the tribulation period. It's going to make more money for the rich people than ever before. You think they're billionaires now? When you combine the church with the government, there's going to be more money made than ever before. And they're going to have a particular location where it's going to operate from. And when they see that destroyed, they're going to mourn and they're going to weep. And so you see that with this idea of the Kerbinase is a guy who is a shipmaster and he's able to direct and to guide things. And so when it's talked about, that same word is used for the guy who has the gift of administration. That he has the ability to steer and to guide and to direct the business of a church in a way like no other. So I give you these uh, uh, signs that you see with this guy. It's the guy, uh, the gift of administration allows the giftee the ability to steer the business of a church in a direction consistent with the spiritual objectives and the organizations of that local church. And so as a church has these objectives of how you're trying to operate, we have it in our Constitution. Our objective is the perfecting of the saints. So that person with the gift of administration will take the resources of the church and steer the church pursuant to that direction. The gift of administration allows the giftee the ability to establish church government consistent with the objectives of the church. Now, I meant to bring our uh, Constitution up here. I don't have it. But if you uh, have gone through the membership class, which you all have, you've gone through the church constitution. You've realized that this church has objectives that we're trying to accomplish. And these are pursuant to what Scripture says. And so this, this is very important because this person uh, does not have to establish this now because the Constitution's already been established. But say that we didn't have a Constitution. He would be very instrumental in helping to establish the Constitution of the church, the guidelines by which the church operates from. Uh, the gift of administration, uh, the gift of administration allows the giftee the ability to manage the business of the church in an orderly fashion. You know, we're, sitting, we're looking for a local church now, or a building, comedian. Uh, if we had a person with the gift of administration, they would be crucial in that because they would have some insight 
that probably some of us don't have. And they would be able to operate in a way that was really beneficial. Uh, and then the gift of administration allows the giftee the ability to know the best way to accomplish the business goals of a church. Now, I don't think that necessarily that the person that has the gift of administration, and one of the things we're going to see with these gifts, when you come into the church, just because you're good at something in the world don't mean that you have that ability in the church. My wife is a teacher, but that doesn't mean she's a teacher in the church. Right. She doesn't have any desire to do that at all as she shakes her head. Uh, just because you're a businessman in the world don't mean that you just you're a businessman in the church. Because it's not about your ability or some ability that you have. It's about the Holy Spirit using you to accomplish this end. You see, so he can take anybody and use that. I've always liked to say if God could use a donkey, which he did. With Balaam, he certainly could use me. Did you know he used a donkey to speak to Balaam and to tell him to stop what he was doing? He certainly could use me. So none of the things that we'll see with these spiritual gifts are based upon any natural ability we have. I've seen people with the gift of pastor teacher who were shy. And yet when they got up behind the pulpit, you say, who is that guy? They turn into somebody completely different. And that's because the gift is not based upon you, your ability or inability. It's based upon the spirit's ability to use you to do what he wants done in a local church. And so I have people tell me, well, I couldn't do that because I'm so shy or I'm this or I'm that. It has great. All the more reason to see the Holy Spirit's work in you. And that's the thing that really matters. And so with this person with the gift of administration, they are what we would put under what is called order gifts. They help the local church to operate orderly. Where there is not a bunch of confusion, where the business of the church is being acted out and dealt with orderly, (coughs) where the people who have need are being taken care of, where the bills are being paid, you know, it would be a sad thing if the church's lights got cut off because we don't have anyone competent enough to take care of the business of the church. And so that person has the ability more than anyone, I believe, to order the direction of the business of the church. And that's the one with administration. Now, we'll come back next week. Lord willing, the rapture doesn't occur, and we'll look at the person that has the gift of organization. And we'll see that that person is different from administration. He takes all of the gifts in the local church. And we'll see, I have a chart to show you how all of the gifts can plug in to what a local church does. This person has the ability to take each one of the gifts and plug them in in such a way that they're able to function in the local church. And we'll see that next week. Lord willing. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful that as believers that we have a God that has covered all things and that you have not left anything uncovered. We see it in the function of the local church and the use of spiritual gifts and how you've used these gifts, uh, you use these gifts to the building up of the body, even down to the very minute point of the details of ordering the business of the church. We're so thankful, Father, that we serve a God who is so wise and in complete control. And we're thankful for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.